Max Verstappen has eventually won the 2022 Drivers' World Championship in a shortened Japanese Grand Prix that featured plenty of controversy. This is the F1 Strategy Report. My name is Michael Laminato and this is Round 18, the Japanese Grand Prix, powered by LeaveCal. Keep track of employee leave and make resource planning easy. Search LeaveCal in the Zero App Store. For a good two hours, it looked as though rain would call off the Japanese Grand Prix, forcing Verstappen to wait yet another round to seal his second crown. But with less than 45 minutes to go on the clock, the race got back underway at Slippery Suzuka. Verstappen did all he had to do. He aced the restart and pulled away from the field at more than a second a lap to win the half-distance race by almost half a minute. But no one was sure whether that would be enough to make his points lead unassailable. Charles Leclerc had been ably holding off Sergio Perez for second spot, but at the final chicane he went off. He rejoined unsafely and copped a penalty that demoted him to third behind the Mexican. But still that wasn't enough for Verstappen, given only 28 laps had been completed. Except, actually, it was. A little understood loophole in the rules meant full points were awarded, and during the post-race interviews, Verstappen's second championship was confirmed. It was the last of a notable string of quirks and controversies that characterised an eventful Japanese Grand Prix that decided the title. To help decipher the race that delivered Max Verstappen his second world championship, I'm joined by Chris Medland, F1 correspondent for Racer.com. Chris, welcome to the Strategy Report. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been a while, hasn't it? Has what a race! What a, well, not the race per se, <laughs> depending on your point of view, but what a what an event, what a situation in which Max Verstappen. Is the world champ? Who saw it coming that Max could possibly be the world champion this year? <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. I mean, the shock of that. Um, it, in that sense, that's probably the best spin you could put on it. It's that <laughs> it was unexpected because nobody understood the rules yeah, and well. therefore thought he hadn't won it, and it turned out he had. But um, that was the only thing that was unexpected about him winning the championship, wasn't it? Yeah, I look forward to describing this in the future as the tense and unexpected championship. <laughs> all this, all because of that post race. It was tense just because specifically of that post race interview, not for any other reason. Oh, just that interview, Johnny Herbert. I have to issue a public apology. I even <laughs> tweeted, "Don't do it, Johnny," because he started, and I was like, "No." <laughs> And um, and he was correct. Who knew? He got it. Johnny Herbert, turns out, is the only man who knows every page of the sporting regulations, <laughs> I assume. And good on him for it. Look, let's start with the championship before we get into some of the details of this one, because, well, we've got to mention the second world title. It's won in substantially less controversial fashion than his first one, has got to be said. And in some respects, I kind of think this was almost the perfect race for him to win it, putting aside that it was short and, and all that kind of stuff. But just smashed this one out of the park on a day when you know conditions were against him. A lot of stuff was going on around him. A huge margin for him to do it with as well. Does this sort of encapsulate his season to date? Yeah, it, it really does show the kind of level he's operating on. And it's it's kind of, I think sometimes achievements are a bit overlooked when you've had Lewis Hamilton being as dominant as he's been and getting the records he's got. We've been talking about someone you know matching Michael Schumacher's number of titles and, and you know, setting a new record for wins. But Max is only 25 and he's now got two titles, he's matched Alonso for race wins, so I think puts him joint sixth on the all-time winners list already. Um, these are incredible achievements that, with the time he's got left in the sport, hopefully, um, could take him a long, long way. And from that, you then have to think, okay, then how good is he? And like you say, a day like uh, Sunday where it was so treacherous. It, the, the way I kind of feel like it's the biggest compliment I can give him is if it was dry, you thought Verstappen's going to win this. When it was raining, you thought Verstappen's going to win this. Uh, when it was potentially going to be mixed or it was a red flag, Verstappen's going to win this. There was no situation where you thought, oh, he'll struggle here or maybe this will mix it up. Really, you didn't believe it. Um, <laughs> he's just supreme in all conditions. And it was, what, basically a second a lap he was putting on the field? Yeah. Um, 
And he just doesn't change his approach. Like the start wasn't great. Leclerc's got the inside line. It's wet. He could easily understeer either into him or force him off the track. And and Verstappen's still like, no, I'm here to win this race and just hangs it around the outside and gets it done. When he, he again, easily could have, you know, just pushed that little bit too hard and gone off himself. So he just doesn't get those things wrong or so rarely does. You know, everyone makes mistakes, but it's so rare that you just come to expect him to find a way to win. And um, and that really is the standard of the guy at the moment. That move around the outside as well, I just think summed it up so well. As you said, not only for his approach, though, but just the idea that every now and then Charles Leclerc or someone else has looked threatening and he's just completely wet blanketed it, like neutralized <laughs> it in a way, whatever way he likes, like in a way you wouldn't even expect. I thought that was absolutely superb. The other element of this as well that we should touch on is the fact that Red Bull seems likely to win the Constructors' standing. It's got to be said in the next week or two. Uh, and that car has really come a long way as well. And we'll mention this as we get a little bit long in the podcast. But that car had no problems in the wet, no tyre problems in, in the way that Charles Leclerc certainly had. That car's in a really sweet place at the moment. Now, there's, of course, a whole off-season of development to come from, from its rivals. But how much is this a really big vindication for Red Bull as well? Assuming they'll win two, but even if they only win the one, considering you know the fight we got at the end of last year and the, the way that we all thought that they were pushing harder than anyone else. Yeah, it's been very, very impressive because there's times when you kind of feel like Formula 1's moved on and, and I almost criticised Christian Horner for living in the past a bit when he was always talking about the four consecutive championships and the dominance at the end of the V8 era. And then it's like, yeah, but the sport's changed now. You know, It's the V6 era, different set of regulations, and, and you haven't quite turned that into a situation where you can win a title. But what they have really proven, that even with what was essentially what a seven, eight-year gap between being able to properly fight for a championship, that they have every last ounce of quality that they had then. Uh, and as soon as they've managed to get the car into a position where it can do it, they've absolutely nailed it. And then they've developed a car as impressively as anyone else, well, better than anyone else really this year. Uh, I think it was a little bit overweight at the start of the season and essentially just by slimming it down slightly, it's properly brought it into this zone where it's a big threat on a on a Saturday, but not always on pole. But that doesn't matter because on a Sunday, it's just um, always a race-winning car. It's got that capability. Um uh, I'm trying to remember, I want to say it was maybe Australia before his retirement in that race that Max seemed to settle for second where he was like, oh, I just don't have the car to beat Charles today. Every other weekend, it was he's he's there to win it and has a chance of winning it, which, um, yeah, kudos to Red Bull for doing that because, as you say, Ferrari got to focus fully on this year. They, they could really write off the past couple of seasons. Mercedes were going toe-to-toe with Red Bull last year and and look where they are. So, yeah, it's a, it's a big achievement that really shouldn't be overlooked. Yeah, I'm going to at this point plug racer.com because after recording this, of course, the cost cap ruling will have come out. So, <laughs> you know, just put an asterisk on everything we've just said in case something untoward's been found in that. But look, go and check it out and uh, let's hope everything still stands, at least for the purposes of this podcast. But let's look at the race now because there was a lot to unpack from this race, aside from the fact that Max Verstappen, of course, won it. That started from the very beginning. The rain was coming down at the start of the race for the second uh, week in a row, much less uh, badly than it was in Singapore, it's got to be said, considering you could still see most of the track and it was not all underwater. But it did seem like there was real eagerness to get this one going. Fair enough. I mean, race has got to start eventually, but it was really on the cusp of those conditions between inters and wets. And I mean, if you were Carlos Sainz, you're probably saying it was probably a little bit over. Now, they all chose inters at the end of the day, but was there perhaps room for a little bit of I don't know, circumspection here, maybe in the way, I mean, I know everyone criticized Monaco, for example, for starting too late because the rain had arrived, but was there perhaps in retrospect a little bit too much of an eagerness to just get this underway when conditions were clearly deteriorating? 
Yeah, I think what was strange about it was I remember I was doing a, a live radio broadcast in the build-up and I had the race control messages up because I was mm. saying, you yeah, know, we might get a message here that says safety car start or start delayed or, you know, wet weather tyres must be used, something. You normally get some sort of guidance. And there was nothing. There was one message the whole hour before the race that just said risk of rain is 100%. <laughs> uh, and that was it. So I, I was a bit surprised that there was no kind of movement on that front for the FIA. I was kind of pleased with it at first, but as we found out with that, um first lap it didn't take long to get a few corners into it and go oh actually this is a bit sketchy um whether or not that was a timing thing because sometimes it can have been on the formation lap it was okay and the rain just intensifies as they line up on the grid and you get to a section of track where it's not passable anymore but i i feel like maybe with the uncertainty with the fact that it had rained consistently but got a bit heavier uh that they maybe could have said all right everyone has to start on full wets at least um, because as much as all the teams complain about how poor the full wet tyre is, when they're all forced to use it, they obviously have to, and that levels the playing field between them. So they're all struggling in the same way. Um, it's not like you're saying, well, the full wet would be safer, so use it if you want, or use the Inter, because everyone will use the Inter for the performance and then end up off the road, potentially. <laughs> so um, yeah, I think the FIA could have maybe, if they wanted to get it started on time, um, and you know, the conditions were raceable uh, for a spell, would have been go full wet from the start but um again you, you are right to mention that that's in retrospect you know it's hindsight's a wonderful thing and if they'd have done that uh and or delayed the start and then we'd had that big delay that we did have because of the rain everyone would have had a go saying we could have got this started and you didn't and now look at it so in a sense on that one that there's a few things i'll criticize the fia for today but for that one i'll say that that was a tough tough call yeah i think it's a fair call i think as well it must be very difficult if you're race control to make a call based on spray you know grip is one thing because drivers are clearly going off the track for example at a formation lap or simply just reporting that, it, that it's no good but the spray looked even worse on that first lap than you could have imagined based on the formation lap. And it's such a funny thing, isn't it? Because it doesn't seem logical in some respects. Like you think, well, they're only on inters. They're only getting rid of so much water and it's only raining so much. But the spray was clearly, well, I mean, it was really shocking, wasn't it? That was the thing. But just to go back to the tyres for a second, because Max Verstappen was pretty vociferous about it afterwards. As drivers have been for quite a while, as I think you mentioned, that the wet tyres kind of not really that good like okay you can displace a lot of water but doesn't offer or offer the performance and just doesn't really work out i guess on the one hand you know this is new regulations and the tires have had to be designed without the cars really being on track but it has been a long-running problem why does it why does it seem like this has become a relatively new formula one thing that wet tires don't really they're not really used for racing uh, i think the problem actually is the intermediate tire being a really good tire mm. um and i know it sounds strange but if you think of how much running they do on the inter the pace they find on it how they can actually run it from pretty wet conditions uh if we think of when they did the race restart and mm-hmm. and vettel and i think it was joe weren't it? Uh, sorry vettel and latifi were straight in to get inters because they just knew it would give them the performance um they know that even in pretty wet conditions, you can use the Inter, but you can run right through to when the track's nearly dry and almost burn it down to a slick and it still gives you some grip. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if if the track's still damp, but then you hit trouble like Charles Leclerc did. But if you think back to Turkey a couple of years ago, like drivers will run them to slicks in certain conditions and that range means you just want to be on it because it's going to hit 95% of wet weather conditions. So there's only a very small window that you really would turn to the full wet. And that is when conditions are really bad, which means you're using a tyre in really bad conditions. So it's going to feel really bad. Um, it's just a survival tyre, really. And in a sense, that like, we don't need it. It's, it's Pirelli have almost created a really good one single wet tyre and a set of slicks. But they also have this extreme wet that, that no one cares for. So um, 
I, I genuinely think they'd be kind of helped by saying, all right, we don't have, we don't use extreme wet in a race. Like that's not a race tire. That's just if people need to get their car to the grid in a monsoon or something. Um, I, I feel like it's almost starting to ask the impossible then to say, okay, make your inter a little bit worse and make your full wet a little bit better so that there's a different crossover point because you'll still hit a window where people go, oh, there's no wet tire that's right for this moment. Mm-hmm. You can't have something that's perfect for every wet condition, partly because wet conditions change so rapidly. So I actually think it's, um, in a sense, the Inter's fault. But it's also just the car performance. We're used to uh, epic wet races in the past where these cars were lapping a heck of a lot slower mm-hmm. and with less downforce. And as impressive as they were, that creates less spray. That means there's less demand on the tyre as well. And you can go racing in, in extremely wet conditions. But I think it was uh, Senna's pole lap from, am I right in thinking it was 91, uh, that was shown as a side-by-side comparison by Formula One to Vettel's pole lap from 2019. And I think Seb was 12 seconds quicker mm. around Suzuka. And that's Formula 1 versus Formula 2 levels now. So that shows how when we compare it to then and say, well, they raced in heavier, wetter conditions and didn't complain about the tyres so much then. It's a completely different category of car. So it's eventually physics come into it. Where <laughs> if, if, you dis- if you're good enough to disperse that much water, you'll create that much spray. If you've got a car that can create that much downforce, a tyre that's dealing with water just can't handle it. Yeah, sometimes you kind of have to go, this is as good as it's going to get. Yeah, a really good call, especially on the evolution of, of the sport over the years, which I think is too often forgotten about when people like to say it was better in the old <laughs> days. Well, I mean, it, it was different in the old days, I think it's fair to say. La- race didn't last so long, certainly not for Carlos Sainz, about half a lap. Uh, he crashed out coming out of the hairpin around about turn 12. And this was frightening because of the spray, not just because of the crash. Visibility was really poor. You've probably seen videos going around by now of how little cars could see and also how close they came to collecting Carlos Sainz and what would have been a really uh, terrifying accident. And this is where the decision-making is really interesting. It's been unpacked by, or will be unpacked for weeks, really, particularly inside the FIA. Obviously, they're going to review this whole scenario. We know it ultimately ended with a truck being on track and the session eventually being red flagged. It's hard to know which specific bit of decision-making is where this all triggered. But I guess let's start with the safety car that was naturally enough called and then subsequently a truck was sent onto the track. This is all technically correct, though, isn't it, according to the FIA, but I guess not, uh, let's say, the correct decision-making or the correct judgment, I suppose. Is it fair enough that the FIA said this considering the, the conditions were changing so rapidly? Should they have known better? How do you see all this first part unfolding? So... There's a bit of a problem in that not all of this is written down, mm-hmm. as in we go on how they do their processes and we've seen them do it, but you can't go to a set of regulations and say, oh, this is how they say they'll deal with a safety car um, car recovery or something like that. That's not written in black and white um, or not for us to see. But as far as I'm aware, and I, I put this to the FIA and wasn't told I was wrong, and um, you can probably back me up, Michael, on this if, if you think back, but whenever there's an incident and they need to get a crane or a truck or something onto track, that's why they throw a safety car, mm-hmm. which is why some people get annoyed that you think it will be a VSC and it's a full safety car. But whenever that happens, they wait to send personnel out until the safety car has picked up the whole pack and bunched them up, which is why we have fairly long safety car periods mm-hmm. because the race needs to be neutralized and everyone needs to be behind the safety car. So yes, while it's right that a crane may well go out onto track with the cars on track circulating by the safety car, it doesn't happen when the cars are still spread out and trying to catch up and therefore going quickly, which is exactly what Pierre Gasly was doing. And I think someone, for want of a better term, effed up with not realising Gasly had come in, changed his front wing, been in the pits a while, was on the best tyre in the full wet, 
and was catching up to the pack. As he said himself, it was nine seconds under his delta as well. They do move quickly because they're told to, to in order to then bunch up quickly enough so they can get the recovery underway. I think someone started the recovery too early. So that's where it went really wrong. And then, as you say, like they race control have enough cameras to have seen how bad visibility was. Um, the type of accident we had was an aquaplaning one because of you know standing water in a river across the track. Therefore, that could definitely happen again, even at low speed at that circuit of all places where we've seen it happen before. Uh, I just it blows my mind that someone made the call to send it out. And I wonder it may not have come from um, the FIA at race control. It could have been the clerk of the course or, you know, one of the local um, sort of motorsport managers, essentially, who's going, I'm in control of sending the truck out at the right time and thinks, OK, run the safety car. I can send it out. Uh, it might have almost been following process blindly and not actually looking at the situation. But that was a, um, a real shame if that happened because it was uh, extremely dangerous. And as much as Pierre Gasly got uh, his penalty afterwards, he got that for the how quickly he went back to the pits after that point, after he passed the crane. It wasn't about the speed he passed the crane at. Um, and Pierre rightly was saying that he, he could well have been badly hurt or killed if, if it had gone wrong for him there. But similarly, he could have badly hurt or killed someone else who was then in the firing line if his car had been out of control. And as he says, it doesn't matter if he's, in a sense, doing 200 or 100 kilometers an hour. If he aquaplanes, he's going to slide off at a speed that's far too high for a human to survive being hit at. So it was just a, a horrific situation that should not have been created by sending people out there. And it wasn't just a crane. At the time Gasly passed, there was a marshal at the mm. front of the car moving it as well. So, um, yeah, I, I feel like somebody just did not think, just didn't take that split second to go, these conditions are bad. Like, let's make sure everyone is 100% where they need to be before we, we send anyone out on track. Um, and the fact that they red flagged it as Gasly came by, which I believe may well have been a direct reaction to, hang on, there's stuff on track and we've got a car coming because some other drivers behind the safety car had already mentioned the crane. Um, it was still too late. Um, but he, but if it wasn't that and it was just about the weather, then if they were going to red flag it anyway with the weather situation, why send anyone out on track into danger You know, when you're going to have loads of time to clear the car? So... Yeah, to me, a catalogue of errors that probably don't land on one person, but just a lack of awareness to look at the wider situation and just staring at their normal procedures and following them. Yeah, you summed up really well. And I also like that that in that, and, and Pierre Gasly mentioned this, the fact that it was so close to being red flagged it sort of asks the question or begs the question, why not just red flag it to begin with, particularly when conditions are not just about grip or about a car crashed, but also the visibility aspect. We've seen races not continue or red flagged or not started for visibility before clearly played a role here as well. Uh, and that is a big question. But you've touched on something else there that I think is sometimes something people don't want to acknowledge, particularly in a situation like this, because there were also errors on, on the governance side of things, but drivers going too fast. Now, you, you said there as well, Pierre Gasly was within his rights behind the safety car be going at that speed and within his rights to expect that there wouldn't have been a truck on the track because that's not the convention here. But he was going so fast after the subsequent red flag. Now, even though it was red flagged and as far as he knew, we can only assume that he knew there wasn't an incident on the back straight, but perhaps, again, he wasn't to know it considering there, there had been a lap since he'd, he'd rejoined the track. But that speed was immense, like 250 kilometers an hour under a red flag in conditions where you know that the track is hazardous. It's not the first time we've seen drivers really push the boundaries of, of speed that they can travel at under certain safety conditions, whether it's red or yellows. We've seen, I think it was, it was Hungary in 2016, we saw a whole debate about yellows in qualifying and speeding. Is there anything that can be done on this side of the equation? I mean, is it just, it sounds silly to say, but like driver education for Formula One drivers or something? Because... 
I, it's obviously competitive. Like that's the point of it. But when the flags are out, it's it's no longer competition. That's the point of the flag. Yeah, exactly. And it was. Uh, I thought something was really telling. I managed to um, follow some of the Sky coverage, and Paul Deresta said, who's you know fairly recently been racing in F one, that they they're not strict enough with the flags at all in Formula One. You, you get you know a double wave yellow means you need to be prepared to stop if you need to because of what's going on. You have to be going really slowly past an incident. A single wave yellow is you know be prepared to take evasive action. Um, and he says they're they're allowed to get away with just a little lift and a downshift or just to show they didn't improve in that sector. But they're still driving as close to flat out as they can. There's no actual proper slowing down going on uh, in those situations. And eventually that's going to catch someone out. Someone will do what they've been allowed to do and it will go wrong. And as a driver, they'll say, well, we've always done it that way. And you've said that's fine up to now. Um, it's That's on the FIA to come down harsher, to say, you know what, we're not allowing you so if, if you get to a double wave yellow, you need to be going at at least half speed or, you know, we you know, change the delta they want to change, whatever they, however they want to impose it, maybe throw more VSCs, just find a way of, of properly slowing the cars down. Uh, the flip side, I think, to the argument is that, as Gasly also said after the red flag, he said he could have gone slower and wasn't aware if there was anyone else on track afterwards. He hadn't thought about it, but he thought he'd pass the incident. Uh, but similarly, it's that he was on the right tyre for the conditions and that the car obviously generates downforce the quicker it goes, which gives you more grip. So actually in, in the wet as well, if you go too slowly and you start tiptoeing and you lose tyre temperature, it's suddenly like driving on ice and you're more likely to crash. So you do actually have a kind of minimum speed you'll need to do to be able to drive safely as well. Uh, I think he was well above that. But um, <laughs> yeah, there, there's also that argument that it's not just, I'll make them all drive back at 30 mile an hour. Um, I, yeah, I, I think it could be, uh, more strictly enforced with a few caveats there that they need to say, okay, we know that we can't you know, go so extreme that it becomes dangerous driving too slowly. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's just not been enforced enough. Uh, it's not been policed harshly enough for them to go, okay, if you if you go past a single wave yellow, you have to have properly slowed down. At the moment, they don't. They just have to not be going quicker, which is remarkable, really. Yeah, I remember talking to the former uh, FIA chief medical delegate, Gary Hartstein, and he would often say that he was worried that was going to be one of the things he'd have to attend to, an accident caused by a driver just not obeying flags that are out there for their safety. So it's something that is constant, ongoing uh, as an issue in probably all motorsport, but this is uh, a Formula One, of course. Now, subsequent to this, of course, we did eventually get a race restart after two hours of red flag action or inaction, depending on how you want to look at it. Uh, and we got 45 minutes of racing, and that number will be important later on. But let's talk about that restart, because it was behind a safety car, which seemed perhaps an acknowledgement that conditions weren't quite there. Uh, we, we saw as well, of course, that the, the wet tyres were used, but really only briefly. It was Sebastian Vettel and Nicholas Latifi, as you mentioned, who switched out of them pretty quickly. Were you surprised they were the only ones who were so bold as to, to do that? I was, I was really expecting maybe a good at least five or six to give it a go, considering how much everyone hates those wet tyres. And they had had that lap behind the safety core, a couple of laps as it was. They were the, the big winners, really, from all this, just by being the only two to give it a go. They were, but no, I wasn't surprised in that, um, I think it was two laps later, George Russell was telling Mercedes, don't bring me in. They're only mm. going quicker because they don't have the spray. And I think everyone was worried about what happened on the original race start and how much spray there was and, how, and the aquaplaning and thought, we need a couple of laps just to be sure here that... Um, we're not going to get to the same situation if we go to the Inter. But um, Vettel obviously had nothing to lose because he'd spun on the first lap and he'd been in a position to get a big result. And the only way to get it back was to gamble. Um, Latifi actually surprised me a bit because, um, you know, with the greatest respect to him, he's not someone you always think of as standing out in tricky conditions. Um, he's had some good drives in those those times and or taken advantage of mixed up races. But 
you generally see, say, qualifying in the wet or something, you, you don't tend to see him shine. So when it was, um, yeah, potentially risky to make that change, I, I thought that was a brave call from him, actually, because he'd had a weekend where he'd been slightly ridiculed for an error he'd made in practice, and uh, obviously he's losing his drive. So you could almost say he didn't need to take the risk and, and potentially hurt his reputation even more by aquaplaning off somewhere. And instead, he made it work brilliantly. Um, you know, The fact that he kept the McLarens behind to the end of the race as well and, and got himself uh, in the points was an excellent move so um yeah i think also other drivers though just want to know let someone else make that jump first and prove it right or wrong because as much as it seems obvious that i'll just be first to do it and, and you're going to gain think of george going to the slick in singapore mm. definitely didn't work um there are times it's the wrong tire so um they just needed to see someone else do it and get those few mini sectors that say oh they're going much quicker than anyone else now and then they will react so uh, yeah, I was surprised someone like Fernando Alonso actually took so long to come in. He he tried to hang it out. Totally understood the opposite idea of Haas with Mick Schumacher and Guan Yu Zhou at Alfa Romeo running long on the full wet and hoping someone did go off, cause another safety car and you've got a free stop. I mean, if it got red flagged at that point, uh, you'd have you know potentially have won the shortened race just from having not made a pit stop. So that was definitely worth the risk. Um, but someone like Alonso, yeah, in a quick car in a good position, that surprised me he took so long. So um there was just clearly a sweet spot and most drivers found it by coming in straight away after Seb and uh, Latifi did yeah the gambling on the delay was an interesting one because again to compare it to Singapore and it seems unusual that we've had two wet races in a row to compare them but that was a big winner for McLaren or Daniel Ricciardo in particular for having stayed out and not made that decision early enough the conditions were a little bit different it was more about the sort of slipperiness and greasiness of it back then but Completely failed for Mick Schumacher, even for Daniel Ricciardo, again, this time around, waited a little bit too long and, and lost some positions through that. At the front of the field, though, while Max was really starting to pull away, Ferrari was dealing with a tyre problem. The front tyres, as we've seen pretty much all year, just weren't really lasting, and that eventually resulted in Charles Leclerc going a little bit too deep into that final chicane and losing that position. But it kind of struck me that, okay, I know rain conditions are not the best ones to compare cars like for like because there's a lot of variables, more variables than is usual going on. But it sort of struck me that the Ferrari now has left very few advantages at all against Red Bull. And I know that kind of sounds like an obvious thing to say, but pretty much anyone I could see out there was that sort of that the very early section of any straight, they have that little bit of good kick of power out of a corner and then pretty much after that, they just seem absolutely secondary. Is that what you were seeing in this race as well, or is it too much considering the wet weather sort of shaded everything a bit? No, I completely agree. And and the other slight strength they seem to have is just switching the tyres on mm. instantly. So that the first couple of laps of the race, when we went racing again, Leclerc was able to stick with Verstappen, which in those conditions was impressive, but it didn't last long. Uh, and similarly, it's happened, I think, in, in the dry when we've had early laps of a stint where you go, oh, he's keeping them honest here, and then just fades and that's because of how hard they're working the tyres. So it turns it on quicker, but burns it out quicker. And if you don't get ahead in that spell, um, you're in too much trouble. And with these cars being able to overtake, then even if you do get ahead, it's likely that you're going to get repassed later on because um, you just it's not impossible to overtake anymore. Therefore, you know the track position isn't actually as crucial as it once was. So yeah, it's it all seems to have slipped away from them. I think in a sense, there's there's a lot of areas where Ferrari are close and a bit of work over the winter and a bit of improvement will put them right back in the ballpark. Yeah, they're not far off, um, certainly not on a Saturday, and they just need to tweak it. And if you look at Red Bull and how closely matched it was at the start of the season, it shows that if you do get it right and you improve on those weaknesses just incrementally, little by little here and there, your whole package is is pretty damn strong. So it, it's not doom and gloom, I'd say, at Ferrari in the sense of where they were a year ago and where they've got to this year. 
they just do need to learn where those little weaknesses have added up to really cost them against Red Bull and that they no longer have a strength and try and find one. It will be really interesting to see if they can do that because, of course, you know, Red Bull will <laughs> yeah. be trying just as hard. And there are many rumours about how they're developing their car. Maybe not rumours, maybe reported since then, how they're developing the car over the last few years and into next year. But we'll wait and see more about that one. Now, after 28 laps, just over half race distance, as it turned out, after 45 minutes or thereabouts of racing, we did get the finish. Or was it 28 laps? Because it's sort of the question, isn't it? That there is a, a rule about when the flag should be shown after a time certain race. Max Verstappen was way so far. It was so far up the road, in fact, that TVs had stopped bothering to show him. And as a result, we didn't actually see him cross the line for the penultimate time. When he, in fact, I don't even think we saw him cross the line and take the checkered flag. The camera crossed to it slightly after that. Just showed how much was going on behind him and not around him. And there's a little bit of, uh, let's say, uncertainty or a little bit of speculation about whether or not that rule was applied correctly on a day where there was a lot of question about the rules. What did happen here with this time certain race, the second time in a row now we've seen a time certain race? So the way it works is if you have a you have a three-hour window to get the race in, but the race itself can only run for two hours. So once you start the race, if you then red flag it like we did on Sunday, you have to um the the three hour clock is running so that's your window to get going again otherwise you could just wait around forever uh but once you start racing you have a maximum of two hours to to be lapping for um and if you do run for two full hours then the race will end now in the in the instance of running for two full hours when the clock hits zero that's the penultimate lap so it's when you cross the finish line with the clock at zero marks the start of the final lap so it's two hours plus one lap is the race distance when it's to do with the three-hour window to just get the event in, when that runs out, the race is over. Uh, the next time the league car crosses the finish line, the race is over. So for Verstappen, he crossed the finish line with four seconds left on the clock, I think, um, to start what was what proved to be his last lap. So as soon as the clock hit zero, they then said, this is the final lap. But most people were thinking of when it's a two-hour time limit and that it would be, well, it will be plus one. So there'll be one more lap. Um, so it's just two slightly different... Um, sets of regulations really around different time limits and I think that was actually understandable because again the three-hour window needs to give a certain cutoff and you're just extending that cutoff even further if you're going well it's three hours plus one lap you're already you know taking up quite a chunk of time there so they they just say the lap that you're on is the final one what would be interesting would be if it was going to be right on the cusp and you're at you know it's at two (laughs) one zero and you have to call it there and then. I think that's why the two hours plus one lap exists, because if it's you know zero point zero one seconds still on the clock when a driver crosses the line, you don't have to be trying to make the call there and then. Is the is the race over or not? You're saying, okay, we've got half a lap to look at it, and then we can say no, it will be one more, or no, this will be the final lap. Uh, so yeah, I think that's why it, it, that might get changed too. To be honest, that might be another regulation the FIA look at and go, it's probably sensible just to do time plus one lap but in regulations as they're written they did apply them correctly uh it's just when time runs out that's the final lap that you're on no one thinks about the poor person waving the flag he's got to be ready what if he had only one second to wave the flag they've got to think of the flag guy it's the way it's got to be no one thinks about the little people in Formula One anymore do they they've lost lost touch lost touch absolutely they have there's a different set of regulations here as well that was also uh controversial in the sense that there seemed to be two different ideas happening at once, not in the way that people anticipated. And this decided the World Championship. Imagine that, rules deciding the World Championship. <laughs> and that was whether or not Max Verstappen was on for full points after completing just over half of the race distance. Now, as I think we've already mentioned, 99.9% of people were certain 
except for Johnny Herbert, he was the one point one percent, point zero one percent of people who knew that Max Verstappen was the world champion, but most assumed he was on for. Uh, well, let's just call it three-quarter points. Uh, I'm not sure what these precise percentage is because they've all been round out to nice, even numbers. That wasn't the case, though, because the checkered flag was flown. How is it? There are a couple of questions I want here, and some of them probably don't have answers. How is it, one, that it seemed like only the TV graphics people seem to get this right and no one else seemed to know about that? Maybe that's a rhetorical question. But, true, how is it that everyone seemed to know what was in the rules, but fundamentally misunderstand them when, well, for most other weekends, no one ever has any confusion about the rules. Everything goes so smoothly. It was hilarious, wasn't it? Uh, The first one, I really don't know. I I (laughs) still am not sure if someone in the F1 TV graphics was just unaware and (laughs) thought, well, the race has started. And as long as we get to full points, you know, to be fair to them, when you're trying to guess how long the race will run, you don't have to be a red mm. flag at a certain time again. You don't have to be a safety car. You don't know if it will run clean. Then you also don't know at how many points you're really going to be playing for. Um, it's going to be only when the race ends, do you know how many points are on offer. So you can kind of just use the full points graphic and then react to the finishing result and the time of the race rather than say, oh, right now he's on for nine points, but that's only if we don't mm. exceed eight laps because if you're on lap six, you're like, well, we're definitely going to get past eight laps. So we need to give him more than that. But then you don't know how much more. So it gets very confusing uh, to try and explain on TV. So I wonder if that happened, but I don't know for sure. Uh, I really don't know how no- nobody else knew. <laughs> I think mainly because there was just an oversight in the regulations. I, if you look at the statement and press release that came out when it was announced that the FIA were changing the point scoring system for shortened races, um, and it says about how there'll be three different columns, and if you have x number of laps it will be this point setting if it's a few more laps it'll be this uh in there it talks about shortened races it doesn't say about races that don't resume and things like that 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 detail of wording isn't in there so clearly the intention in the in the whole release that they gave that said the world motorsport council just needs to ratify these rules um was saying you know if a race doesn't run to a certain distance you only get so many number of points so everyone was expecting that to be the case. That's clearly the intention of the regulation. But Formula 1 being Formula 1 and the FIA <laughs> being the FIA, and in a sense, rightly, they have to apply them as they're written because you can't argue differently like, oh, we didn't mean that. That, that <laughs> won't hold up or shouldn't shouldn't hold up. Let's not dig up old, uh, <laughs> old bodies. But um, yeah, it's, so in that sense, um, they did the right thing. They suddenly realised they've put in a regulation that's addressing a similar situation to Spa or a race that does get called early because of a red flag and we don't get started again. But at the same time, it should apply to all races, depending on their length. And they just hadn't worded it properly to cover all races. And therefore, actually, the way the, the wording was written, uh, as long as you are running in green flag, I don't even think it needs to be green flag conditions. As long as you're not under red flag conditions, when the clock runs out for the three-hour time limit, uh, at that point, you get full points which is uh, ridiculous because it could have been one racing lap. It could have genuinely been a race start, clock hit zero, that's it, race over, and a one-lap sprint would be a full-points Grand Prix. Um, it could, And I think it could have even happened behind a safety car, which is what they were trying to stop happening. So that shows it wasn't the intention. But yeah, it was just someone has written it. And because it looked largely as you'd expect, nobody noticed it was wrong 
when we looked at the rules yesterday, but nobody must have noticed it was wrong when they wrote the rules in the first place. So that's why we ended up with this situation. Yeah, and I think that's a good point because I almost sometimes I think it's a lot of people are being almost too clever about it in retrospect, saying, "Oh well, you know, we intended it to be this, but the rules are written wrongly." Because the rules have always been written in this way, and I can under I can believe no one could have envisaged a race ending like this. Like when you think about all these time limits we put in place on all the races, it's hard to imagine. Even though realistically it shouldn't be that hard to imagine, but it is kind of hard to imagine a race that can get going way later in its like three-hour window. Normally we're talking about races that start and then the typhoon that rocks up or whatever, you know, it's too wet, things happen like this. And even Belgium, that situation that was being addressed by this rules change was actually the what's in the rules at the moment, that a race can't be resumed. So sometimes I think people are being a little bit too, always a little bit too cute by saying, yeah, of course we knew this could have happened, but it's been written incorrectly because... For all of F1 history, pretty much, the regulations have only talked about races that, that finish. And I guess it's only relatively recently, I say recently, 10 years, that we've had a, a finite uh, window in which a race has to finish because it would have been impossible for this to happen in 2011 or earlier. In fact, we know, 2011 Canadian Grand Prix, we all remember what we were doing for those four and a quarter hours, don't we? I'll remember every... Worth it, though, yeah. wasn't it? In the oh, end? it was, actually. Well, they, See, and I am the person who thinks they shouldn't have tiebreakers in the fifth set in Grand Slams for that reason, because you're going to get a good result. And sometimes, I think, you should be allowed to have races that go for way longer than you expect. And as a final one to wrap this one up as well, it's, as we've sort of demonstrated, somewhat messy a Grand Prix in overall execution. Great result by the drivers on track, but generally speaking, there's been a lot to chat about. There will be a review into this, and the FIA reviews all safety matters anyway, but they've emphasised there'll be a, a big review, big review trademark on this one. What does it say about the status of, I guess, the way the sport is being run at the moment? I know it's very easy to be critical of the FIA, and I'm not looking for a, like, let's have a good crack at the governing body here, because at the end of the day, most races run fine, and that's good enough, right? Like, well, not good enough, perhaps, but it's good. But, I mean, you know, we're coming off the back of an off-season that's seen pretty substantial upheaval in race control. We know Michael Massey was dismissed over the off-season, and we've got two race directors now who are rotating. We've seen skirmishes with the drivers over all sorts of things with the application of rules and so on. Is there something deeper that needs to be addressed here? Or is that just reading too much into what was maybe a uniquely uh, unhappy, messy Grand Prix? No, I think there's something deeper that needs to be addressed, to be honest. I think for an um, international governing body of such a massive sport, uh, I just don't think it's caught up yet with how big and um, professional Formula One has got. And I don't think it has enough people in place um, of a good enough quality in the right positions uh, but also, I just don't think it reacts well enough to certain situations as well. And there's a disconnect that just doesn't seem to uh, ensure that the sport runs in the way that if you think of the way a Formula One team runs. They are like clockwork. They are incredible, like amazingly well-oiled machines. And they 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 almost outsmart the FIA all the time, <laughs> understandably, in a sense, the way they have to work with the way they interpret regulations and things like that. But the amount of... Um, kind of knowledge and just how smart so many people are within this sport means you need to match that if you're trying to govern it. And I don't think that exists in the right right places. Um, and I, I feel like the FIA needs to invest more heavily uh, and needs to be willing to make big changes. And th they suggested they were with this uh, remote race control. But how something like remote race control can't then foresee a lot earlier, can't be looking at, at driver onboards all at once saying conditions are way too bad. You know, we can, you can't see anything. Let's red flag it straight away. Or, you know, don't send a crane out on track because we can see that there's still mm -hmm. cars coming around. Anything like that. Like that should all be covered by them. That, and, and I feel like it's not made a dent 
um really this year i can't i can't say that i've watched races and thought yeah you can really see where um it's improved uh, in that front so uh, yeah i do feel i think with with a slight um bit of leniency to the fact that it's under uh, new presidency there's clearly upheaval within uh, the organization as well uh, and probably a bit of infighting in terms of people trying to get into certain positions or keep certain people happy until the dust settles then maybe you do get these kind of gaps but um no i feel like the the fact there were so many comments over the weekend and the fact it took the FIA until the end of the day to eventually turn around and go, okay, we might, we might have done something wrong. We may, we'll look at it. We actually, we don't think we did anything wrong. We think we ran it as we should, but everyone else is telling us we did something very bad. So we'll, we'll kind of pay attention. Their default was, no, 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 no you're all wrong. We're, yeah, we did this right. Um, that happens too often. There's too many times now you can criticize them. And I, I tend to be one who errs on the side of, you know, you don't see the whole picture. You've got to put yourself in their shoes uh, and try to... And I think they sometimes the FIA get really unfair stick because people confuse the FIA and Formula One itself. Yeah. And, you know, they say about like the calendar and how it's ridiculous they're asking so much and taking the money. And it's like, well, the FIA don't do any of the deals and don't set the calendar. They just ratify it. Um, that's all on Formula One, that sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, there's there's other ways that the, the sport is kind of governed and, and refereed almost that I really feel like it just doesn't match... Um, and the inconsistencies don't seem to be getting any better. I don't think having two race directors has helped that. If anything, you either need a lot more, uh, and you need and you need one overall who is saying these are how we're going to apply rules. You guys do it for me, um, or or you need just one. Uh, and if you can't have just one, that's because you've created a situation in the sport where it's unpoliceable, too many races, whatever it is. Then look at the catalyst for that. But yeah, I just I just feel like. Let's use very briefly, I know we're getting to the end of the pod, but use the example of Singapore and Japan and the Perez penalty Mm -hmm. and how long that took for something that should have been black and white. Did he drop 10 car lengths back or not? And then the stewards are paid as professionals and and, and are hired as professionals to say, give their opinion on something. Look at it and go, do we think that was um, something that would give them an advantage or not? Is that something that was intentional or not? And and therefore make a call. That's, That's what they're there for. They're not there just to let the driver give them the excuse and then say, okay, yeah, that's, that seems valid. We'll take it. Because one week later with Charles Leclerc, they did exactly as you'd expect them to do. They looked at an incident. They didn't think, well, we want to know why Charles missed that chicane or we, you know, we want to see if he thinks he gave up the advantage. They just looked at an incident like any referee does in any sport and gave their opinion on it, which is a very well-qualified opinion or should be. That's how it should be done. So the fact that you saw two wildly different approaches within a week shows you that that lack of consistency really needs addressing. That's that's where there's a big, big weakness. Yeah, it's been a, a pretty telling couple of days for Formula 1, I think. Only a couple of races to go, but the championship has been decided. What else could possibly happen this year? Someone touch wood somewhere. Well, we already know something's probably happened since we've recorded this podcast, so go and check races.com for that, I suppose. Second plug of the day. Chris, it's been great to chat to you in this championship-winning episode. Thank you very much. It's been great to be here. I didn't even know it was the championship-winning episode until, you know, <laughs> they finally clarified it. <laughs> The Japanese Grand Prix was controversially run, but there was nothing controversial about Verstappen's title win. He's been comfortably ahead of the pack almost all year, and since July has found another gear to sprint to an early championship. It may not have been ideal circumstances in which to win it, but there's no denying he is a deserving world champion. Thanks very much to Chris Medland for joining me. The Strategy Report is powered by LeaveCal. Keep track of employee leave and make resource planning easy. Search LeaveCal in the Zero App Store. You can subscribe to The Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a rating and a review to help spread the word. You can also find us on social media.
The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast. Special thanks to Ben Loke from Bloke Designs for the show artwork, and our theme music is by Simon Hosford. My name's Michael Aminato, and I'll be back in a couple of weeks to wrap up the United States Grand Prix.